In the history of Christianity, person after person after person um, has, has given their life uh, for the cause of Christ. And as the martyr lays his life down for the cause of Christ, it, it serves as a megaphone to the rest of the world with a message. The, the message is the gospel is true. That, that Jesus is worth dying for. He's worth laying your life down for. And so person after person who has died for the cause of Christ has actually served to propel the gospel message forward, has actually served to grow Christianity. The early church father Tertullian said this, the blood of the martyr is the seed of the church. You see, for the onlookers who, who see a person giving their life for Christ, as they say, stop preaching the gospel, stop preaching the gospel, and the believer says, you, you can't stop me from preaching the gospel, you can't stop me from proclaiming the beauty and the glory and the majesty of Christ, and they kill him for that, what that does in the hearts and in the minds of the onlookers is it implants a question that says, is the gospel true? Um, and so we see in the early church that the word martyr meant witness. But because those witnesses were being killed for Christ, the word martyr began to be associated with people who were killed for their faith. In Acts chapter 2, the early church begins. In Acts chapter 5, just a few chapters later, the disciples are thrown in jail. In Acts chapter 8, we have the first recorded martyr, a man named Stephen. And then in Acts chapter 12, uh, Herod chops off the head of James, but James, the Apostle John's brother, the, the one who is in the top three-tier leadership of the disciples. He is beheaded for preaching and proclaiming Christ. And for the next three centuries, Christians are being killed wholesale under the Roman government. Christians are often tied in animal skins and fed to the lions. Christians are often thrown into the gladiator arena to be killed for sport. Christians are drawn and quartered. They're, they're beheaded. They're often hung on crosses, emulating their savior. This is what history tells us. And, and under the Roman emperor Nero, Christians were captured. They would take them. They would impale them on stakes. They would wrap them in pitch and resin and they would light them ablaze to light their nighttime garden parties. This went on for centuries, people being killed for the cause of Christ and refusing to recant even at their death. And this happened for centuries until the Roman Emperor Constantine outlawed persecuting Christians, but it didn't stop it. Christians were still killed for their faith, there was a man named uh, John Wycliffe, and what he did is he, trans he was the first one to translate the Bible into English, and he wanted to get the Bible into the hands of the common people. You see, then only the, the upper echelon of people could read the Bible, but Wycliffe desperately wanted to get the Bible into the hands of the common people, so he translates it into English, and carrying on with this this hope to get the Bible in the hands of everyone everywhere followed a man named John Huss. And John Huss was burned at the stake for getting the Bible into the hands of the common people and for preaching faith in Christ alone is salvation. And on his coattails was a man 
named George Wishart, who was a great Scottish reformer who was burned at the stake in 1546. In more modern times, there was a man named Jim Elliot and four others who traveled to the jungles of Ecuador to share the gospel with the Alka tribe and were speared to death in 1956. And today, Christians in North Korea and China and many, many other places in the world are giving their lives for the cause of Christ. The question is why? Why wouldn't they just recant? Why wouldn't, as, as the spear is going towards their chest or as the noose goes around their necks or as the, the fire is lit beneath them, why wouldn't they just recant? The reason is, is because the gospel is worth dying for. This news that we proclaim, this message that we have to share with the world is worth giving your life for. It's worth dying for. It's not foolish that those people didn't recant. It's not silly that they didn't say, oh, it was just a joke or I take it back. It's not a waste to give your life for the gospel. So that begs the question, what is the gospel? What is this great gospel that's, that's worth giving your life for? Well, Dr. J.I. Packer sums up the gospel in three words. God saves sinners. God saves sinners. That's the message that's worth dying for. That's the message that's worth laying your life down for. God is a just God. He is a good God and he is a just God, which means he punishes sinners. And that's a good thing. Murderers and rapists and pedophiles, those people are sinners and will be punished by God. And everyone in the room would probably sign up for that. Yes, we want to see people who have done bad things. We want to see those people punished. We want to see murderers thrown in jail and punished. We want to see rapists punished. We want to see those people punished. But when we begin to really reflect on our hearts and, and we look in the mirror of our soul and say, wait, I'm a sinner too. Just like those guys are sinners, I'm a sinner too. I've lied, I've cheated, I've done things that I'm not proud of. I have a past, I have a long laundry list of things to where I've disobeyed God, I've failed God, I've ignored his commands, and so have you. Therefore, that just God must punish you. And you have no way to save yourself. There's nothing that you can give him you can't pay him back. You don't have the right currency, right? What, what do you have to give him? You, you have nothing in it of yourself to offer God. What are you going to give him, your life? He can take your life if he wants it. What do you have to offer him? But listen, this is where the good news part starts to come in. That's the bad news. Here's the good news part. The good news is that God sent his son Jesus to die. That payment that is yours the, the payment for your sin, that's what Jesus does on the cross. He's paying for your sin. The currency that you don't have, that's what Jesus comes to provide. He comes to provide the perfect, obedient life. That's the life that he lived. And then the, the, the payment that you had to pay, which was death, Jesus pays that death. That's the message of the gospel. And through faith in Jesus, we get a life with him of purpose and we get an inherited eternal kingdom. 
That's the message of the gospel that is worth laying your life down for and dying to see that message go throughout the whole world. That's worth it. This is why today in our text, the Apostle Paul can make such a statement. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. So if that is the gospel, what is death to the believer but simply the doorway to seeing, knowing, and experiencing Jesus more fully. So so he can, he can say with with all confidence and with all authority, for to me, you want to know what I think? What, What I think is for me to live is Christ and death is gain. That, that's, that's where I'm at. And what's crazy about that statement is this makes the Apostle Paul untouchable and therefore dangerous. I mean, what can you do to the Apostle Paul to get him to stop preaching the gospel? I mean, what can you do to him? You've you, you got to understand that, you know, the, the Roman government is trying to get him to stop preaching the gospel. The, the, the really religious guys in Jerusalem, they're trying to get him to stop preaching the gospel and to stop loving Jesus. And, and they'll say things like, you know what, the, the, Paul, if you don't stop preaching the gospel, we're going to kill you. And he goes, well, death is gain. Okay, well, you know what, you're a Roman citizen, uh, Paul, so we'll let you live. Okay, well, to live is Christ. Okay, the Apostle Paul, we'll, we'll give you all the money that we have if you just stop preaching the gospel. Well, uh, I count all that stuff rubbish. <laughs> okay, well, well, Paul, we'll take everything away from you. That's okay. In chapter 4, he says, I have learned the secret of how to abound in hunger. What can you do to this guy? You can't do anything to him to get him to stop preaching the gospel, which makes the Apostle Paul incredibly dangerous and untouchable to the the problems and concerns of humanity and mankind. He's untouchable. He's unstoppable. So what the gospel does, listen to this, the gospel brings courage where there is cowardice. The gospel brings order where there is chaos. The gospel brings joy where there is despair. And the gospel puts steel in our weakling spines and the gospel puts fire in empty bellies. So the apostle Paul can stand with all boldness and proclaim, for, for, to me, is, <laughs> to, to live is Christ. And, and death, well, Death is gain. If you haven't been with us in this series, um, we've learned along the way that the Apostle Paul has gone to Jerusalem and he started to proclaim that gospel message, the gospel message that God saves sinners through Jesus Christ and his work, uh, his death on the cross uh, and his resurrection. He, he's, he's been um, proclaiming that message in Jerusalem and the men in Jerusalem didn't like that. They, they, they thought that the Apostle Paul was attacking all of their customs and their ways. And if people start following Jesus, then they wouldn't be following the religious leaders in Jerusalem. And they didn't like that very much. And so they had the Apostle Paul arrested. But because he was a Roman citizen, he was taken from Jerusalem to Rome to where currently um, he is sitting in chains, chained to the Imperial Guard, the Praetorian Guard, 24 hours a day, seven days a week on chained lockdown. And what, um, what had happened is 10 years prior to 
to him being jailed in Rome, he had planted a church in Philippi. He had begun to spread that gospel message all throughout the world, and, and he got in a boat and went across the sea and entered into what we know today as modern-day Europe and, and walks from the seashore nine miles inland and gets to the town of Philippi and begins to preach the gospel. A church is planted, and then he goes on to keep doing that, to keep planting more churches, to keep preaching the gospel. Um, and 10 years later, he is arrested and in prison in Rome, and his friends in Philippi have sent him provisions to make sure that he's cared for, to make sure that he's taken care of through a man named Epaphroditus. So the Apostle Paul sits down and pins this great letter and sends it back to the church in Philippi that he had planted 10 years before. So what we have learned over the last couple of weeks is that the Apostle Paul is a man who is totally and radically changed and consumed by the gospel. <laughs> we talked about that last week. He, he keeps saying, he keeps talking about advancing the gospel, gospel advancement, the gospel this, the gospel that, the gospel, gospel, gospel. I mean, it's all that he seems to focus on or care about. I mean, he's, he's infatuated and consumed with Jesus and seeing his name made famous. And it is that same gospel that has built a deep partnership with this church in Philippi. He loves them. He cares for them. He, he has a relationship with them that is deep. He has a, a relationship with them that goes beyond just having some common interests. He has a relationship with this church that, that goes beyond just having a history together. Their relationship or their partnership or their fellowship is bound and based in the gospel. And so he loves them. He cares for them. This is what we've seen over the last few weeks. So we're going to be covering a lot of text today. Uh, so I'm just asking that you stick with me. Uh, we've got a lot of stuff to cover. Uh, th there's some great, great stuff. It, it opens up with, yes, I will rejoice. He's got this amazing verse, for, for to me to live uh, is Christ and to die is gain. Uh, verse 27, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. Uh, verse 29, for, uh, for Christ you should not only believe in him but also suffer for his sake. Th this thing, is jam-packed with awesome, okay? So we're gonna have to um, j just kind of take it at a pretty uh, steady and fast pace to, to get through today or else um, we'll have dinner here around six or seven o'clock at the end of my sermon. So we're gonna have to move, okay? Let's take a look at verses 19 through 21. Yes, and I will rejoice for I know that through your prayers and through the help of the Spirit, of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. And it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed. But with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If you remember last week, we closed with verse 18, and closes with, I rejoice. Look back at it, at verse 18. What then, only in every way, in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that I rejoice, verse 19, yes, and I will rejoice. Last week, he was joyful and rejoicing because Jesus was being preached. That just pumped him up. He, he didn't care if it cost him his reputation. He didn't care if it cost him people thinking he was cool or whatever. He didn't care. Jesus was being preached, and he was really excited about that. In this text, he's also rejoicing, but he's rejoicing for a different reason. Now, he says, I will rejoice. Why is he rejoicing? Because this, 
okay, he, what's happening to him, this is going to turn out for my deliverance. That's why he's excited. I, I'm, I'm rejoicing because I'm going to be delivered. That's the statement that he's making here. So what does he mean? Has the Apostle Paul heard a word from God that, that any moment now the, the soldiers are going to take the shackles off and let him go? Is, is that what he's meaning, deliverance? Well, there's a qualifier. I, I'm rejoicing. Why are you rejoicing, Paul? B- because all of this is going to work out for my deliverance. Because in my body, whether by life or by death, What he's saying is, here's why I find a deep source of joy. Because this ultimately leads to my deliverance. Now, that could mean that at any moment, the jailer is going to come and set me free. Then I'd be delivered. Or it could mean any moment, the jailer is going to come with a sword and cut my head off. And listen, that's deliverance too. (laughs) So, so he's guaranteed deliverance either way either way if they set me free I'm delivered if they come and kill me I'm delivered and in that I'm happy I'm joyful I'm rejoicing at the prospect of an assured did you see the assurance in the apostle Paul look back at verse 19 again for I know I know this. I know that I'm going to be delivered. I know that all of this stuff that is working together for my ultimate, my ultimate deliverance. There's no way that I'm not going to be delivered. This means that the same assurance of deliverance is true for you today. His same assurance. I know I'm going to be delivered through this. Through his pain, through his suffering, he knows it's going to end. If you're here this morning and you're experiencing suffering in your life, you're experiencing emotional distress, you're experiencing pain, I don't know what you carried in today, but this assurance can be yours today as well because, listen, here's what's gonna happen. And and I don't know what you're struggling with. I don't know what your suffering is. I don't know what you're going through right now. But listen, either it's gonna get better and and it'll be over and done with or it's gonna be terrible until you die and then it'll be over. Now that seems like (laughs) um, an oversimplification, doesn't it? To, To say, well, Things are hard, um, and either it's going to kill you, um, and it'll be over, or things will get better, and it'll be over. But I want you to see what the Apostle Paul is experiencing. It is this mindset that causes him to experience suffering in a joyful way. Okay, The, the mindset of One way or the other, my suffering is going to be over. The, the promise of, of a joyful future causes him to experience the suffering that he is in currently in a really different way. Let me give you an example. Um, Anyone in here ever had to uh, muck multiple horse stalls in the heat of August? Okay, okay. Um, So I've I've done this, uh, it's happened a bunch. Let's say that you take a dude and you make him work 80 hours a week for 20 weeks mucking horse stalls and you tell him at the end nothing will happen we'll set you free okay 
Then you take another guy and you make him muck horse stalls for 80 hours a week for 20 weeks. But you say, hey, at the end of this, we're going to give you a million dollars. <laughs> okay, now let's compare the suffering of mucking horse stalls between these two guys. Are their experiences different? One has the promise of nothing. He, he has the promise of it being really smelly, sweaty, and terrible. That's all he's promised. The other guy has the promise of at the end of his pain, at the end of his suffering, at the end of all that he's going through, he gets a million dollars, right? At this point, this guy is pumped about manure, <laughs> right? So what we have is the promise of a glorious future with Christ and that promise of that glorious future dwarfs all suffering here on earth. <laughs> that, that the moment when the, the clouds are rolled back and the moment when the trumpet sounds or the moment when we take our last breath and we see Christ, that the glory and the beauty and the grandeur of that moment of seeing him face to face and experiencing his embrace is so beautiful that in the present suffering, I experience it differently. That the sufferings of this world can't and don't crush me. The, the Apostle Paul isn't crushed. He's in jail with chains on and rejoicing. <laughs> he, he's not crushed by suffering because he's experiencing it in a really different way because there's an assurance that it one day will be over and he'll be with Jesus and at that moment he won't care or think two seconds about being in prison and in chains. So, what is the mechanism for such assurance, or how does he get it? He says, for I know I'm going to be delivered. It's that deliverance or the promise of this great future that really causes me to experience this suffering in a way that that doesn't really bother me. How does he get such assurance? And, and, and the better question is, for you guys, if you're experiencing suffering or when you experience suffering, how do you have such great assurance knowing that all of your suffering is going to work out for deliverance? Look back at the verse. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus, this will turn out for my deliverance. How does he gain such great assurance? Uh, well, the people in Philippi are praying for him. That's one way. And then the Spirit comes, the Holy Spirit, and he empowers, okay? Spiritual power is given to those prayers which creates in Paul assurance. Assurance of deliverance, those two things. Here's what that means. What that means is your prayers are effective. God has ordained that he will accomplish his will through the prayers of his people. Here's a question for you this morning. Who do you need to pray for? Who do you need to pray for? 
There are people in your life that are suffering. There are people all around you that are suffering. There are people outside of those doors who are suffering and they need our prayers. God is calling, beckoning us. I'm going to work through the prayers of my people. So pray for people who are hurting. Pray for people who are suffering. Pray for people who are in need because what God does is he then empowers those prayers with the power of his Holy Spirit, bringing assurance to their hearts that they will one day be delivered. That's what's happening in, in this text here. So for you today, who do you need to be praying for? So um, the Apostle Paul has this great assurance because he's been prayed for. The Spirit has empowered that. He, he is eternally focused, meaning his mind is set on the day to come when Jesus comes back or when he dies and sees him face to face. His mind is set, is set on that eternal reality. What's the, what's the product of that or what's the result of the Apostle Paul being sure of his deliverance? Look back at it again, verse 20. And it is my eager expectation and hope I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. So a mind, stick with me, so a mind that is eternally focused, a mind that is set on the ultimate deliverance doesn't only mean in this life um, we, we aren't bogged down by suffering, but we experience it differently. It means that on the last day when we stand before Christ, we won't be ashamed. His eternal focus, the Apostle Paul's eternal focus, thinking about being with Jesus in the end, actually causes him to live a life here and now to where he doesn't waste his suffering. He doesn't waste his suffering. As a matter of fact, he takes the issues and challenges in his life and he leverages those issues and challenges to share the gospel with other people so that on the last day when he does stand before Christ, he will hear these faithful words, well done, good and faithful servant. So he can say, I'm, I'm sure of it, I won't be ashamed on the last day because these chains I'm using to spread the gospel. That means for you in here who are experiencing suffering right now or for all the rest of us who will experience suffering, it means in those times we pray a prayer like this. Father, how do you want me to use this pain in my life for your glory? How do you want me to use the, the, the strained relationship with my father for your glory? God, how do you want me to use my cancer for your glory? God, how do you want me to use my troubled marriage for your glory? God, how do you want me to use my addictions for your glory, God? How do you want me to use this pain that I'm feeling and, and experiencing? How do you want me to use it for your glory? Because on the last day, when I stand before you face to face, I want to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. I, I don't want to be ashamed on the last day. So the Apostle Paul can stand with confidence as he, as he is in chains and he's leveraging all of, I mean, again, we talked about this last week. This guy's been shipwrecked. He uses it for God's glory. He's adrift at sea, uses it for God's glory. Beaten with reeds, uses it for God's glory to proclaim the name of Christ all the more. Dragged outside of the city and beaten almost to death. I'm gonna use that for God's glory so that he's not ashamed on the last day 
so that whether in his body, life or death, Christ is glorified. Christ is glorified. That is the heart of the Apostle Paul. So he might say something like this. Let let me just summarize this section before we move on to the crescendo verse. The Apostle Paul might say something like this. Because you guys are praying for me and the Spirit has empowered those prayers, I can be assured of my deliverance and not be ashamed because I'm leveraging my suffering so Jesus will be honored. And he begins to ramp up and build up to one of the most profound statements in the entire book of Philippians, one of the most well-known statements and verses in this whole book, as he says, for to me to live is Christ. For the Apostle Paul, it's about Jesus, he has a single-minded focus and pursuit. So, so let's get real practical. I, I wanna give a definition of what this means. What, what does that mean to live as Christ? What, what, what's that mean? What does he mean? Philippians chapter three, verse eight will give us some clarity. It's not gonna come up on the screen, but if you have your Bibles, you can look over to it. Philippians Chapter three, verse eight. We're trying to answer the question. I mean, it sounds really cool, doesn't it? To live as Christ, but, but what does it mean? He gives us a hint here of, of what he's meaning in verse eight of chapter three. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish coming up on our word, in order that I may gain Christ. So for him to live as Christ and death is gain, what he's pointing to in that verse is everything that, that I have, everything that's in my possession, all of those things that, that I've gained in life, I, I count them as rubbish compared to the surpassing worth of Jesus Christ. So what is he saying when when he proclaims for to me to live as Christ? Here's what I think his definition would be. To live as Christ means everything in your life takes a back seat to valuing and treasuring Christ. Okay, to live as Christ, I'm gonna live as Christ means everything else, Everything else, your house, your car, your dog, your job, your career, your, your kids, your fill in the blank, your hobbies, all of that stuff takes a back seat. It takes a back seat to valuing and treasuring Christ. Let me land this plane. Do you love Jesus? It's a really simple question, but oftentimes has a really complex answer if you think about it. Do you love Jesus? I mean, do you, do you really love him? Or like so many other people in the South, are you just caught up in the religious experience? To, to live as Christ has nothing to do with being caught up in a religious experience. To live as Christ has nothing to do with following moralistic rules and laws. To live as Christ is a deep abiding love for Jesus 
which causes you to take everything else in your life and put it in the back seat, on the back burner to value and treasure Christ all the more. Is your heart's affections stirred for Christ? When, when you think about Jesus, does a smile come on your face? When you think about the work that he did, when you think about his majesty and his glory and that by his very word, Jesus is holding the entire universe together, does that stir something deep in your soul? That's where to live as Christ begins. It begins with a love for Jesus. I, I just I want to live for him. I want to live for him. So the Apostle Paul says, for me to live is Christ. What are you living for? For me to live is golf. For me to live is bass fishing. For me to live is my career. For me to live is my kids. For me to live is getting a pat on the back. For me to live is looking my best. For me to live is losing weight. For me to live is going to the gym. For me to live is eating. For me to live is drinking. Our culture is screaming that message. For me to live is fornicating. For me to live is... But for the believer... Our life's song and our heart's cry is for me to live is Christ. I love him. I treasure him. I cherish him. So much so, I'm willing to put everything else on the back burner in my life, and I'm actually willing to leverage all of the stuff in my life to see his name made great. For me, to live is Christ and follows it with and to die is gain. The Apostle Paul's death gains the promise of his eternal inheritance as a son of God. If you love Jesus, here's what that means. You're eager to see him as soon as possible. To, to live as Christ, to die is gain. The, the gain is seeing Jesus. If you really love him, you want to see him. And you want to see him as soon as possible. So, so my question to you is, are you eager to see Jesus? Do you want to see him? Do you want to experience him? Do you want to feel Jesus' embrace? Is that something that's exciting to you? Or do you have a laundry list of stuff that you'd like to do before Jesus comes back or before you see him? You know, if you could just hold off. I'd like to get married first. I'd like to have kids first. I'd like to get to this position in my job. I'd like to be earning this much money. I'd like to travel to these places before, before I see you, Jesus. Or do you really view death as gain because you're gaining Christ? At, at this point, he, he's going to start weighing out some options. Okay, so he said, to live is Christ, to die is gain. He, he's, he's sitting there at any moment, they could walk in and chop his head off with a sword, or like I said, um, he could be freed. That, that's, the, that's the reality the Apostle Paul is facing. He's made this glorious statement, to live is Christ, to die is gain. And so he, he's going to out loud let us in on this internal dialogue that he probably had. Okay? And, and it's a really interesting conversation that he's kind of having out loud and letting us in on hearing this conversation. And here is what I think he wants us to learn from this conversation that he's essentially having out loud, okay? 
I think that he wants us to learn being eternally minded makes you vastly earthly good. <laughs> okay? Being eternally minded or eternally focused, th- thinking about I want to see Jesus as soon as possible, that focus makes you vastly earthly good. Here is his conversation his sort of internal monologue, I suppose, that he's having out loud and writing it down in this book in verses 22 through 26. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I'm hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progression and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ because of my coming to you again. Paul's deadlock focus on wanting to be with Jesus as soon as possible does something to the way that he lives. And the way that he lives is a vast earthly good. Where am I getting that from the text? We'll look back at it. If I am to live in the flesh, I'm eternally minded, eternally focused, but if I stay alive, okay, if if they don't come and and chop my head off, um, if I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, okay? This is the to to live as, as Christ part. Is Paul eternally minded? Absolutely. So the question is, why not hunker down and wait for the return of Jesus? If he's so eternally focused, if he's so eager to see Jesus, um, you know, why not just sell all of his possessions, you know, go get a cabin in the woods and just wait for the earth to self-destruct, right? Why wouldn't we do that? Why wouldn't we just, you know, create our own little commune and, and go live in the woods like the crazies do with matching tennis shoes and passing around the Kool-Aid? If we're so eager, I mean, you could draw that from the text. If we're so eager to see Christ, I mean, why not do the Kool-Aid thing? Because for the Apostle Paul, yes, death is gain, but to live is Christ, which means fruitful labor for you, meaning that the Apostle Paul's life, his sacrificing, what he's doing is actually growing and building fruit in the life of the church in Philippi. All of the people there are benefiting from Paul's suffering. So he says, well, it's actually better if I stay alive. It's actually better if I stay alive because you guys are growing in your faith because of my service to you, because of my suffering for you. So it's better that I stay alive. I'm so eager to see Jesus, but I'm going to stay alive because you guys are growing because of my suffering and because of my work. Here's my question to you this morning. Is your life bearing fruit in the lives of those around you? Can you point to anyone who has either come to know Christ or grown in Christ as a result of your labors? Has anyone in your life come to know Christ as a result of your labors? Has anyone in your life grown in Christ because of your labors? This is what the Apostle Paul is saying. I'd love to see Jesus. Don't get me wrong. That's far better 
but, but you guys are growing in Christ because of my suffering, because of my labors. Are the people around you, are the people in your life, are they spurred on to love Jesus more? Are they spurred on to have a deeper relationship with God because of you? Or are, are they pulled away? For the Apostle Paul, death wasn't just gain, but to live was gain because he was producing fruit in the lives of those people. Paul is willing to suffer so that these other people grow in their faith. I'm gonna stay. Listen, the apostle Paul probably could have provoked the guard, right? He's chained to a Roman soldier. You know, he probably could have made fun of him. You know, you've seen the little skirts they wear. You know, apostle Paul could have just started making fun of him, right? Maybe tried to trip him, poke in the eye, you know. He could, have, he could have, but he said, I'm going to remain in these chains. I'm gonna keep praying for you. I'm gonna keep sending you encouraging letters. I'm gonna bear this suffering so that you grow. Are you willing to suffer so that other people in your life grow in Christ? I'm willing to give of my time. I'm willing to give of my talent. I'm willing to give of my treasure. I'm willing to give of everything that I have so that other people hear about Christ or so that other people grow in Christ. Is that your heart? Is that your heart? So, this shows us that the product of to live as Christ is a joyful life lived with his people. <clears throat> to live as Christ is a joyful life lived with people. Now, that sounds crazy. I thought it was all about suffering, right? He's, he's suffering there. He's suffering for it. Look back at the end of it. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress, uh, progress, progress and joy in the faith. I'm, I'm remaining here and I'm gonna keep on pressing and keep on pushing so that you guys progress in the faith and therefore get joy. Look back at verse 19 again. Yes, and I will rejoice. Verse 25 for your progression and joy. This was so amazing to me this week. This leapt off of the page to me this week. Here is Paul's three steps to have joy even when things are crummy. Okay? Here is Paul's three steps to have joy even when things are crummy. Even when the whole world is, is crushing down on you, the apostle Paul has this joy. Where does he get it from? That's what I want to know. Step one, get the church at Philippi to love Jesus more. How, do, how am I going to get joy sitting in chains in jail? Step one, get the church at Philippi to love Jesus even more. Where am I getting that from the text? Look at verse 26. So that in me you may have ample cause to glory or to love Jesus Christ more. Okay, so the Apostle Paul's sitting there at his desk. Okay, you could just, he's chained to the guards, sitting at his desk, and he's writing. Okay, I want to be joyful in this time of suffering. How am I going to do that? Step one, get the church at Philippi to love Jesus more. Step two, from then loving Jesus more, the church in Philippi, my friends, will be joyful. Step three, I get joy from their joy. <laughs> so, 
his heart focus, where his mind is landing on, what can I say to them? Uh, What can I do? How can I leverage my suffering so that these people start to get into a deeper love relationship with Jesus? Because when they get into a deeper love relationship with Jesus, they'll be filled with joy. And when they're joyful, I'm joyful. That sets us free to live a life of joy. The Christian life is about a life of joy. And so I'm telling you right now, you you want to have your best life right now, right? You you want to know the, the key to joyful living? Leverage everything that you have so that other people start to love Jesus more because when they love Jesus more, they'll be joyful. And when they're joyful, you get joy. And then what do you do next? Well, you just keep leveraging everything that you have so that they get joy and so that you'll get more joy. And then there's more joy that comes from that because it just keeps on circulating, right? That, that is what he's saying here. That's, that's what he's laying out. Okay, so that's what he's hoping for. To live as Christ means I love the same things that God loves. God loves his people, so I'm going to suffer for him. I'm going to leverage my life so that others love Jesus more, so that they get joy, so that I get joy, and I'm just going to keep doing that over and over again. Okay. So, this last section, 27 through 30, um, is essentially him wanting to get them to love Jesus more. So that's his plan. Get them to love Jesus more. When they love Jesus more, they get joy. When they get joy, I get joy. So how do I get them to love Jesus more? Verse 27 through 30. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. That is a clear sign to them of their destruction but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted Uh, Another way to see that word is grace. It's It's a grace that's given to you. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also be really comfortable for his sake. Oh. But also suffer for his sake. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. Paul wants to get them to love Jesus more by a love relationship with Jesus, living the, the, the life worthy of the gospel. Okay, I think it's helpful to, to get us to understand verse 27. Who in here um, has brought an ESV? You have an ESV with you, okay? Now, right there next to uh, that word worthy, you'll see a little number one, okay? So what that means is there's a footnote. So here's what I need all the nerds in the room to do. Push up your glasses, okay? We're gonna go down and look at a footnote. Look at the footnote. Clearly translated in the Greek or or strictly translated in the Greek, it means only behave as citizens worthy. Okay? So it could read, only behave as citizens worthy of the gospel. What what does that mean? What does it mean to behave as citizens worthy? of the gospel. It means that we bring as much of heaven's realities to earth as possible. To live as citizens worthy of the gospel. To to live as people of God's kingdom. What that means is all of the heaven's realities, we take those and bring them here to earth 
as much as possible, knowing that they won't finally be here until Jesus returns and does it himself. But we do everything in our power to make here on earth be as heavenly as possible. Okay? Practically, is there sin in heaven? Negative. Okay, not a trick question. <laughs> Some of you are like, uh, no. Okay, answer is no. So that means for us as believers to, to live a life worthy of the gospel or to live as worthy citizens, it means that we investigate our life and we do everything we can to root out the sin in our life. It means that we lovingly go to brothers and sisters in Christ and, and, and we beg and plead with them to not walk in sin. Uh, are, are there going to be um, mistreated widows and orphans in heaven? No. What does that mean for us here practically? To live a life worthy of the gospel. It means that we protect widows and orphans. Um, are, are there going to be battered women? No. Are, are things going to be in chaos? No. No. So we take all of heaven's DNA and inject it into the culture as much as possible. That, that's what we're called to do as believers. And so what he's doing is he's telling them how to live so that they're cultivating a life that loves Jesus. When they cultivate a life that loves Jesus by living as citizens, they get joyful and then Paul gets joy from their joy. Do you, do you see what he's doing? So that's his heart's hope. In addition, a believer's life cannot be separated from the lives of other believers. A believer's life cannot be separated from other believers. Did you see that in the text? Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel so that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit. That means the church united by the Holy Spirit. It's a supernatural work by the Holy Spirit uniting believers together with one mind. We think the same. Striving side by side. That This is um, almost what it, what it kind of means is to, to wrestle and fight together moving forward. Striving side by side. The call here is to, again, bring as many of heaven's realities as we can to here on earth. Take, take kingdom DNA and inject it into our culture. How do we do that? Well, not by yourself. <laughs> not on your own not living the Lone Ranger Christian life. It, it means that we strive side by side in one spirit, in one mind. It means that brothers and sisters in Christ, we link arms together in the local church and say, what's the mission of this local church? I'm gonna get behind it. I'm gonna fight for it. And I'm gonna move the gospel down the field as far and as fast as I can go until Jesus comes back or they kill me. But we're in this thing together. What's so amazing about that is this camaraderie or this army of many creates something in them and not frightened in anything by your opponents. How are they able to not be frightened? Well, because they're a church. They're an army of brothers and sisters in Christ who love one another, who in times of battle will come to your aid, in times of joy will rejoice with you. When, when things are difficult, the church is here. When, when things are great, the church should be here. That's what I'm talking about. The, the sad thing is so many churches don't look that way. Our heart's desire is that Gospel Community Church would be a group of united brothers and sisters in Christ living life together, moving forward, and when we feel opposition, we're not frightened at all because there's an army of us. And again, what are they going to do to us? Kill us? Then we'll just be with Jesus. <laughs> we're not frightened at suffering. We're not bothered by it because we have brothers and sisters in Christ in this church willing to come alongside of us, pray for us, love us, serve us, and be there for us in our times of suffering. That's why 
were not frightened at all. And lastly, verse 29, for it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him. It, it was grace given to you that you believe in Jesus, period. But it's not only that that's been given to you as a grace, there's another grace coming. There, there's another good thing coming to you. What's that other good thing? That you should not only believe in him, but suffer for his sake. <sighs> suffering, all suffering in the life of a believer, listen, is a grace and a blessing from God. Why? Because he's working all things together for the good of those who love him. So the pain that you've experienced, the house that you grew up in, the problems in your marriage, the, the pains that you carry, your difficult walk, your suffering, the, the pain that you have in your body sometimes, all of that suffering is a good gift from God. Even if it doesn't seem like it, oftentimes it doesn't feel like it, but the benevolent creator and ruler of the universe says, I know this seems hard, but I'm giving this to you because I love you. I'm giving this to you because I want to mature you. I'm giving this to you because I want to grow you. And in the end, it's all gonna work out and you will be delivered. As I investigated my heart this week, I, I began to pray, um, I, I began to, to ask God to reveal some truths that, that were in me. And, and I hope that the same is true for you. And, and this text has encouraged me greatly this week. And, and here is why. Because as I began to really investigate my heart, what I discovered was something incredibly contrary to what culture is selling me. Culture wants to tell you that the greatest thing that you can live for is comfort, is ease, that what you need to do is work as hard as you can and build up as much retirement as you can so that in the end you get your great vacation house, you're taken care of and you get to sit back in a hammock and sit my ties you know, until you die. And, and that's the American dream. Build your life, get a big house, get a big 401k, build all this stuff, build your kingdom and build your empire and that's what's worth living for. But my heart cries out not for comfort but calls, calls out for a cause worth dying for. My heart yearns for a cause worth dying for. I, I, I want to sign my name on the dotted line of a cause that says it's worth dying for. It's worth giving your entire life for. I want to live for something worth dying for and Jesus died so that I could live for that. So I want to I live for a cause that's totally worth dying for and, and I want to live for a Savior who totally died for me. 
And, and this has given me great encouragement this week to know that, that the lives of those martyrs who have laid their life down for the gospel, it's not been in vain. And that the gospel needs to go out to everywhere, all over the world. It needs to start in your home. It needs to start in your neighborhoods. It needs to go out from there and cover the whole globe. That everybody, everywhere, hear the good news of Jesus. And that it grows in us and develops us and changes so, so that we become more like him. And that is worth giving my whole life to. And I look forward to the day when I stand before Jesus and say, Jesus, I gave it all to you. And with the Apostle Paul, he said, I will stand and I will not be ashamed. My prayer for every single person in this room is that you would say that from your heart, to live as Christ, to live as Christ and to die as gain, and that you would wholly, totally give it all over to Jesus so that when you stand before him on the last day, you will not be ashamed. Let me pray for us. Father, I pray for a people that believe to live as Christ, who will systematically root out all of the things that they value more than you. They will remove those things from your rightful place and your rightful seat. I pray for a people who will value the, their relationship with you over all other relationships over all other hobbies, over all other possessions. I pray for a people who look forward to seeing your face. I pray for a people who long to say, just like the end of Revelation says, come Lord Jesus, come Lord Jesus, Maranatha. Father, I pray that that would be in my heart as well that I would value and treasure Christ above all else because you're worthy. You're worthy. You're worthy to die for. You're worthy to be treasured above all else. Help us to see, help me to see the foolishness of treasuring other things, of, of treasuring sex, of treasuring houses, of, of treasuring my, my personal time. Help me to see how foolish that is to treasure those things over you. Father, give us a spirit that's striving side by side together. Give us a spirit that's one mind. Send your Holy Spirit to do a miraculous work in this church, God. That that miraculous work would be um, people loving each other, serving each other, step by step, side by side, moving forward. And that it would serve as a testament that God has done something here. We thank you for your great gospel that you sent your son Jesus to die on the cross. We thank you that we sinners can be called saints. That all of the filth that's been on us, been placed on us by others or, or that we've placed on ourselves can be washed clean. That the wrath of God that was rightly coming to us has now been diverted and we are declared sons and daughters of God. Thank you for that. We love you. We ask you to be here and to empower the rest of our service. We ask this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.